0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean Laughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we have a guest coming down to us from Maine. She came all the way down. was like an hour drive for her, so it wasn't that far. But we are sitting down with Afton Hupper from the Maine Aquaculture Association. And she came down to talk to us about growing up in Maine from a wild-caught fishery family and making the transition into the aquaculture world and talking about some of the cool new things that are happening up in vacation land. What is the name of, What's the, what state is Maine?
1: The way life should be. Is that Maine or is that New Hampshire?
2: We have a lot of tags to I state. I think it's the
1: way life should be. What That's is, what, is, what is the license plate
2: well, It still does, says vacation land. Yeah. So which which what I, I the wish they'd take it, it off because now I have to see all these vacationers. It's the
1: pine tree state.
0: The pine tree state. Okay. Love it. What do you guys have to say about Afton?
1: Afton had some super, super insightful things to say about just generally what the seafood industry is like in Maine, what is causing people to look more closely at aquaculture there because it is such a seafood reliant economy and also the impacts of climate change, what producers are looking for, what they're prioritizing. And I think she's had a lot of like in the field experience, even though she's only worked at MAA for a year or so, she's been able to go around to a lot of farms and talk to a lot of different producers and get their perspectives on some important issues to the industry as a whole. And it was such a great experience talking with her because she had a lot of interesting things to say.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of new, innovative facilities that are being financed and built in maine some of them are going up sooner than others and she talks about that in her story while she's with us
1: yeah there's big stuff happening up in vacation land (laughs) slash the pine tree state
2: (laughs) slash the way life should be (laughs) yeah so
0: enjoy our conversation with afton Uh, i hope you guys learned something and we'll talk to you at the end
1: welcome afton
2: Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering
3: industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and
2: a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all We're sitting
0: things. down with Afton Huffer from Maine Aquaculture Association. How's it going?
3: Great. Thanks,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining Welcome. us. Welcome. Um, it's nice when we can get people that are more local and they can kind of drive down come to us and have a have some time in the office with us and see what we're all about and talk about what they're all about. So, Afton, you are here to talk about aquaculture in Maine. Yes. But that's not all you're talking about because you have a history outside of aquaculture and you grew up kind of in the wild caught world, right? So, you've been on both sides and so I think this is going to be a really cool conversation, but to make sure that our listeners know who you are and what you do, Catch us up to speed on your story. Where did you come from and how did you get to where you are now?
3: Great. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here, you guys. Um, so I grew up in a tiny fishing village in Maine in the mid coast. It's called Tenant's Harbor and it's home to many different folks. But the primary occupation is is commercial fishing. That is sort of the main economic driver in the area. If it weren't for lobstering, it would basically be a tourist town Um, which the summer population is pretty significant as well. So we do have quite a few seasonal residents. But yeah, I grew up in a fishing family and my father goes lobstering, all of my uncles, my cousins, my grandfather, his father before him. So there are a lot of tiny towns in Maine like this where the family lineage stretches back many, many generations. Mm -hmm. Um, Back to the original settlers of Maine, the original white settlers that came to fish for lots of different species, um, started with mostly cod, was kind of the big draw. And then over the years, we depleted all of our ground fish. So lobster is really all that remains today. So that's kind of where I grew up. And then from there, I was always interested in environmental science and sort of like natural resource management. I loved being outdoors. Um, and so after high school, I, I wanted to study environmental science, um, which I did at UMaine. And I was there for two more years to get my master's. Um, and now I work for the Maine Aquaculture Association, and we're a nonprofit trade association in Hollowell, right outside of Augusta. And we advocate for the needs of the aquaculture businesses in the state of Maine. So everything from fin fish to sea vegetables to shellfish to land-based operations, we do it all. And so that's kind of my story.
1: So what do you do, you specifically do at MAA?
3: So I am the outreach and development specialist, which basically means I'm the entire communications and marketing and membership department all wrapped into one. We're really small. We only have four employees at the office. Um, It's a pretty small industry in Maine, so it works for us. But Yeah, I do um, the website, all of our communications materials, our marketing materials, our social media. Appear
0: on podcasts.
3: Appear on podcasts, yeah. Add that to your resume now. Work on PR stuff. I um, manage the media relations as well. Um, In addition to recruiting new members, building our membership package, trying to improve our services that we offer to different growers in Maine. um, And kind of serving as like the outreach person. I also do some education stuff on the side. So, you know, going to visit classrooms and giving presentations, creating educational materials, that kind of thing.
1: That's yeah. great. That's a lot for one person.
3: <laughs> it's a lot.
2: <laughs> and how have you adjusted from kind of that switch over? I mean, you were familiar growing up with the wild fisheries sector, lobstering specifically, but now you're trying to grasp all of this aquaculture that's happening around the world, but specifically in Maine. And Maine is doing a lot of aquaculture. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in Maine.
3: Maine is. Maine's a happening place right now for seafood, for Mm -hmm. aquaculture, for the marine trades in general, which is great. And to be honest, I didn't really have any experience in aquaculture before I got this job. I was really into food systems. I studied sustainable food systems in college, and that was kind of like a central focus of what I did. And I was always interested in fisheries on the side, but I never really wanted to make a career in it. I'm not sure why. I just kind of gravitated more towards terrestrial farming and local food movement, that kind of thing. But <clears throat> when I was looking for jobs after I finished my my graduate degree, I saw that the main aquaculture association was hiring, and so I started to look into it. And before my research started to happen, before I started really reading into aquaculture, I would say I was kind of skeptical. I would consider myself a skeptic as an environmentalist mm-hmm. and having very little knowledge of aquaculture. Basically, the only knowledge was i had heard that there was mangrove farms that were destroyed by shrimp farming or mangrove forests, yep. rather. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of that information triggered kind of a, a cascade of Negative feelings toward aquaculture, you know, as as many people express, you know, they hear one bad thing about a salmon escape or yep. antibiotic use, and so all of a sudden, aquaculture in general is now considered kind of a, a bad industry or, or something that's negative, and that we should always go for wild over farmed. So yeah, I kind of went into it with like a skeptical point of view, but then I knew it was more than just shrimp and finfish. I knew there was other stuff being farmed too, so I wanted to learn more about that. Um, And the more I started learning about it, the more I started to to have conversations with folks who were actually doing it and working in the industry, the more I realized that it's a really positive thing um, around the world and especially in Maine. In Maine, we have uh, really only one company that does finfish farming. It's Cook Aquaculture in the ocean, that is, and they farm Atlantic salmon out in net pens. And um, the rest of the farmers in the state of Maine are all shellfish and sea vegetable. Um, in terms of marine aquaculture. So there was a lot to learn, a lot of people to meet and just the environmental benefits and everything started to really come together for me when I, when I started looking into that as well. And I remember in my interview for this position, they asked me, you know, why are you interested in aquaculture? And the answer that I gave was, I come from a fishing family. Um, my, my family relies on lobster to make a living. And I'm worried that relying on one species for, um, all of our economic growth and support in the state of Maine is pretty risky. And I thought that aquaculture would be a nice thing to try to support because it's another option for people to work on the water. You know, it's more than just lobster. We can farm species as well and lots of different species in different ways. Um, And so that was really exciting to me because I think about my brother. He's 22 years old. uh, He's on a waiting list to get a lobster license because there's a moratorium. Uh, on the licenses. They, they kind of closed down the fishery to new entrants, um, except for, you know, high school students who work their way up. And so... Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, Yeah,
0: I hadn't heard about that. When did that when was that put in place?
3: Um, I'm not sure. It's been in place for a few years now. Um, oh. But the average waiting period now for a lobster license in Maine is 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, unless you go through the apprenticeship program, which you have to start when you're about 16 years old in high school. So you school. have to know that, like, this yes. is what I'm going to yeah. do
0: from a very right. early age. And no one yeah. really knows what they want to mm-hmm. do it. And that. you <laughs> have to
3: log your hours. And it's like... If you don't have the family support or the um, sort of gumption to get it done at that age which a lot of teenagers don't right yeah um, then it's pretty much you know you, you can go stern man with somebody for 10 years until you get a license and that's the situation that we're facing now. So it's wow. a there's a large barrier to entering that fishery in Maine, which is good for the fishery for the sustainability overall but yeah, it's not great for the, for the coastal um, the youth. And mm-hmm. the well, economy I, as a whole.
0: I know we've always kind of looked at, and we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes, I don't know, in one of the early, like, highly produced episodes. Um, we've looked at the main lobster industry as kind of like like the poster child for well-managed fisheries and s- sustainable fisheries. Because, you know, they set those those limits early on and the, the criteria for what you can keep and what you can't keep. Um, very early on, and it was kind of self governed, and so we always look at that as is really a good example of how things should be done. And I think this it's this is not good for potential lobstermen, but it I think it's another example of how they're continuing to to lead that that charge, which is kind of is kind of like yeah. a two way you know two way thing. It's it good is, and bad a little, yeah,
3: yeah. It and is bad. known for that, and and it there is a lot of um, history to back that up for sure.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. A couple questions. When you say sea vegetables, mm-hmm. mostly kelp?
3: Yes, primarily kelp. Almost all kelp. Sugar kelp and skinny kelp are the primary species mm-hmm. that are being farmed in Maine. And then we have a huge industry of wild harvest as well, which is all rockweed.
0: So what is that primarily used for here in New England? Because we, um, we spoke with a kelp farming company in, out of Alaska last year at the Boston Seafood Show, and they primarily... Sold mostly local, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they make salsas and pickled kelp products and things like that. So w- yeah. I haven't seen. You know, we're so close to Maine, but I can't say that I've seen a lot of kelp products here. So what are those primarily being used for in Maine? Do you yeah.
3: Know? Well, I think that makes sense because I think a lot of the the products that are being made with the ma- with Maine kelp are not staying in Maine. They're being exported. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. Um. So. There's been a a market for dried seaweed products and and seaweed that's processed for f- things other than human consumption for a long time. Things like toothpaste and fertilizer and things like that. But now we're starting to see sort of growth in the fresh kelp market for human consumption. So, seaweed It's salad, super nutritious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. really nutritious. It's really high in iodine and calcium and lots of um, micronutrients and trace minerals. So, um and as well as omega-3. So, It's a great food, and there's actually a company, they're located in Saco, and they supply partner farmers with free kelp seed, and these are primarily lobstermen that they're working with. They have um, a tuna fisherman as well um, and a mooring guy that they work with, but they basically contract out these um, fishermen to grow kelp in the ocean in the winter months, and then they promise to buy back 100% of what they farm. And they turn that fresh um, sugar kelp and skinny kelp into smoothie cubes. They turn it into kimchi. They have a beet salad. They're called Atlantic Sea Farms. And so Mm -hmm. they've been like a really big pioneer in this industry. They just announced a big partnership with David Chang and Sweetgreen to make this big kelp bowl. I read about that actually. Yeah. Yeah. So they, cool. they're getting green. their product into like <laughs> mm-hmm. big markets, right? They're looking for whole foods. They're they're getting stuff into sort of like the green consumer into cities and they have to get out of Maine. There, there's not enough market in Maine to support um, the growth that kelp needs to achieve in order to be like a sustainable industry long-term. So I think the, the key is really marketing it and getting it out.
0: Right. So as the fisheries in Maine, uh, the fishery positions are starting to dwindle and you said that really it's pretty much lobster is what we're what we got now in Maine mm-hmm. is kind of the primary fishery there and that is obviously not a, a huge industry for a lot of people to get into right now so you're starting to see this right that they're starting to do more farming former fishermen or current fishermen are starting to get into the farming more yeah over there right
3: yes yeah, some fishermen have left the fishery to farm some fish and farm alongside. Um, The great thing about the kelp is that it's counter cyclical to the lobster season. Oh, perfect. perfect. Yeah. So they will haul their traps up in like November and then plant the kelp in December and then harvest it in the spring and then start lobstering. So it it works out really well. Oh, wow. That's And that that seasonality also helps reduce conflict in terms of um, use in the water. Yeah. There's less boat traffic in the winter. There are far fewer tourists. Um, Not as many people fishing, so it's a good time of year to to have a farm out. And it really helps the fishermen as well because when they harvest in the spring, that's the time of year where money is the lowest because Mm -hmm. they haven't fished since the fall and they're just about to get started. So it's a really tough time of year, and to have that kelp, to harvest and to have a profit in the spring is super
0: helpful. Yeah, they don't and, need to worry about really yeah. squeezing anything they can out of the right. last few months of that paycheck.
3: Like, it's not going to replace lobstering, but it's a really good supplement mm. to it. Diversification
1: is um, always a good thing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not a finance person, but I feel like all finance people are like, diversify your interests. Like, put your money into different stocks so that if something happens to one thing, you have something to fall back on. Yeah. And I think that this is a perfect example of that. There's Nothing wrong with supplementing as long as it's not replacing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of them, they're not only thinking about themselves but about their children. And mm-hmm. if you ask a fisherman, you know, you know, why did you start farming scallop or, or why did you decide to get into oyster farming or kelp farming, a lot of the time they'll tell you it's because of their kid. You know, they want to have some option there for them when they get older to be able to, if they want to, stay in Maine work on the water, have a job similar to to what their parents had, um, have have that kind of quality of life as well and, and continue in our a long heritage of working on the water. And for me personally, it comes down to sort of my personal crusade against gentrification, because mm. growing up in a, a tiny town that gets flocked with tourists in the summer and summer people who you know live there for two or three months out of the year, They're slowly pushing us out and it's been happening for a long time. It's happened throughout like at least half the coast at this point and then all the way up as far as like Stonington and Deer Isle down east, which were traditionally huge lobster um, grounds and they still are um, primarily supported by fishing. But they recently had announced that they are facing a housing crisis um, because of the number of wealthy out of state people moving there and the property value goes up and then you know, why work there when you can't afford to live there? Yeah. So for me, and aquaculture, there's no one that lives there
1: year round. Right. Yeah.
3: And so aquaculture, I think it's not going to be able to solve that, but at least it's something else that we can do to try to preserve our access and our livelihood on the water where, you know, otherwise if, if lobsters can't survive the gulfing, the warming Gulf of Maine, and if they continue to move north um, i'm not sure what would keep the working waterfront alive at all because we we rely on them 100%
0: so has fish farming and sea vegetable farming from what you've seen has it been kind of embraced and welcomed with open arms in maine or is there some is there pushback happening because you know we talk a lot about wild and farmed and the two sides and some people feel certain ways about You know, like you were saying, you used to have some issues with aquaculture until you learned more about it. And I know that there's people in aquaculture side who have issues with wild caught fisheries. So obviously we try to do what we can to inform people so they can start to bridge that gap and not and accept both uh, as equally important. But have you seen in Maine that there's been pushback or that there's been a welcoming of that?
3: I would say overall it's welcomed. Yeah. By Vast majority of folks. That's great. Um, a lot of fishermen are really positive about it. Uh, a, a lot of people who have lived and worked on the coast see it as an opportunity rather than an obstacle. Typically, where we are seeing some pushback is in two situations. So the first one would be riparian landowners who maybe weren't involved in the process to obtain um, all, all of the aquaculturists in Maine have to obtain a lease from the state, which is basically just an agreement to operate aquaculture practices mm-hmm. in state water. They don't own that area, but they are allowed to practice farming and they have to adhere to a whole slew of regulations. And sometimes in the process to obtain those leases, either landowners are not involved or maybe they feel like they have to fight it because they don't have a lot of information when when farms first arrive or when people propose an idea. Um, so at, at, at the association, we really try to Encourage folks to do a lot of community work and, and get people involved because what we find is oftentimes when they feel like they're part of the project, they're more more supportive more supportive of it. Um, so we've seen a little bit of pushback from from the riparian landowners, and then aside from that, there have been some instances where um, other users in the marine waters. Have expressed concern about, okay, the size, how how big is aquaculture going to get in Maine, um, saying things like, well, there's no plan because, you know, it's been a very small industry for a long time. Yep. Um, To put things in perspective, there's about three and a half million acres of coastal waters in Maine, and aquaculture takes up roughly 1,500 of those acres. So less than 1% of the total coastal waterways is currently designated for aquaculture. That's
1: tiny.
3: Yeah, and about half of that is um, Cook Aquaculture's salmon farms, which at any given point, there's a number of those that aren't even being used because they fallow and rotate their sites. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very, very small. But opponents may argue that it's not about the size, it's about where the farms are going. So it's super important for the farmers when they first propose a project to have a conversation or many conversations with the harbor master, all the local landowners who are going to be within, you know, a thousand feet of the site, as well as community leaders, fishermen, other users um, to prevent that conflict. So there there have been some issues, but I wouldn't say it's anything that's going to impede growth um, and that overall it's, it's looking positive for, for the industry.
1: Earlier on, you mentioned that the Gulf of Maine is warming. And I'm wondering if you've seen any results of that affecting the seafood industry in Maine yet or if it's too soon to tell or what your take on that is.
3: Yeah. Well, I know from the wild fishery side, it's definitely been affecting the lobsters. There's been a rise in shell disease, which we really don't know what causes shell disease in lobster. Shell rot. Um, yeah, it's kind of like when the when the hard material in the shell gets really soft, um, and it, it's like they can't shed it away. They'll shed it away, but then, it, you know, it can continue to soften over time. So we don't know if that's really a product of ocean acidification or warming waters or both. And then, of course, we know how a really warm season can affect lobstering because. In 2012, we had a really, really early spring and it got super warm and there was a glut of soft shell lobsters and it sunk the price. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of fishermen actually stopped fishing because the price was so low that they figured let's cut the supply because uh, this isn't going to work for us. And so that was a really bad year. And I think people, scientists have kind of been clamoring on about, you know, the fear of losing lobsters in Maine. And fishermen get really discouraged by this, obviously. It's it's pretty depressing to hear that news when there's so many other pressures they're facing as well. You know, mm-hmm. we have a whole battle right now with the endangered North Atlantic right whale mm. that NOAA has been kind of asking the state of Maine, trying trying to work with the state of Maine to try to figure out, like, How can we reduce the number of vertical lines in the water, number of fishing ropes, because they suspect that the right whale decline is in part due to entanglement. But there's really no way to prove that. Mm. So so there's the right whale issue that the lobster are facing, as well as a shortage of bait and increasing bait prices. It's been a real challenge for them as well. So the climate change stuff is just, you know, adding, (laughs) adding adding to the growing fuel to the fire. Yes. Insult to injury. But yeah, definitely the shell disease. Um, the the changing density of the population, so like in the in Zone D, which is sort of like the heart of the mid-coast Penobscot Bay and like St. George and sort of down into like the Cushing Friendship area, that's where my family fishes. And that used to be sort of like a major fishing ground. And over the last 20, 30 years, um, we've really seen that population, that density shift towards down east. So like Stonington and Deer Isle now are major fishing ports. So there's a suspicion that the lobsters are migrating to Canada and that southern Maine is going to just lose the lobsters altogether, kind of like um, Massachusetts and, and New York did. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of fear. And um, I think that fear is also being affected by the increase in aquaculture. Because if we have a population of frustrated and worn out and depressed fishermen who are hearing all this bad news and then all of a sudden someone wants to propose a farm right next door to where they're fishing, that can be maybe threatening to to their livelihood. So I think what we need to do as an industry is really work together and try to figure out how can we collaborate and how can we make this an option for them as well to support their livelihood. And, And, you know, we both benefit from having a strong working waterfront. It's not one or the other. We need wild and we need farms. Uh, We can't really rely on one or the other at this point, especially in Maine. So aquaculture is not going to replace lobstering right now. It can complement it, though. And I think that there's some really Mm -hmm. interesting ways that that's happening. And uh, it's good to support it, I think.
2: Well, if there's any of our listeners wondering, you know, if they're not from the seafood industry and wondering, well, what if we just start farming lobster? Lobster is a species that you cannot farm because they are...
3: You, you cannibalistic the, yeah, you cannibalistic.
0: can farm you can farm lobsters but it's not really financially feasible they take 7 years ways. to reach yeah. maturity yeah. they take a long time yeah. you need to once they get to a certain so when you're growing lobsters if they're when they're small when they're babies you need to keep them in constant like state of motion in a yep. tank or else they will all just eat each other because they're super highly cannibalistic and so you need to be really careful with the way that you're taking care of these babies and then once they get to a certain size you need to put them in their own little individual spaces so you can't just keep them in a big tank and you know you need to give them like a rock to play with so they can develop a crusher claw and a ripper claw so there's just raising
3: a puppy (laughs) there's a
0: lot that goes into raising lobsters and it's just it's not you can't you can't get the same outcome for the same amount of money that you would with other species that you no. can just put in a big tank. And so a lot of people who have looked into farming lobsters, it's just not financially feasible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've I actually give
2: lobster daycare.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> what it's. Yeah. It's like, I mean, if you think of a lobster farm, it's going to be like, basically it's going to be pants. like cubbies, like little, yeah. little yeah. wooden yeah. cubbies. And there's one lobster in each one with like, a, a, like little rocks <laughs> to, to play, play with. around with. And <laughs> like, and, and that's, I mean, they'll tear each other apart if they're together. So
3: yeah. I think um, the economic incentives really aren't there either because it's such a well-managed fishery exactly. that there's no real demand for farmed lobster. Yeah. And there um, is
0: such a historical kind of romanticism around that industry, the main lobster industry. I mean, yeah. it's it's worldwide. It's well known. And there's there's a long history and there's, yeah. there's a connection there that you wouldn't be able to duplicate mm-hmm. if you were farming it from a marketing for point sure. of view.
3: For sure, yeah, and and people are really drawn to that when they move to Maine, when they build a house on the coast of Maine, you know, having lobster boats in their backyard. Sometimes that's part of the experience, that's part of the value for them is coming in and experiencing a working waterfront. And our job is to help them take that association and expand it. You know, it's not just lobster. Yep. We have people who are farming oysters and scallops and mussels, and they're out there running boats at four a.m. as well, and they're hauling their gear and, and bringing really delicious, fresh seafood home every day for us. And, you know, we have a diversity of seafood in Maine. We don't need to have a monoculture like we do. Um, so I think trying to get people to associate Maine farmed seafood um, with that quality that they already aso- associate with Maine lobster is a huge goal for us. And like that's something that we're going to be working on for a long time as well.
0: Go from Maine lobster to Maine seafood.
3: Maine seafood, right. Mm. Yep.
2: I can say the oyster seems to be there for me when I get a local Maine oyster. Maine Oof.
3: oyster, yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the issue with... So oysters in Maine are all marketed uh, individually because every farmer has a company and they they kind of want to market their products as their own products because there's so much variety uh, and variation in how they taste, the brininess, the So the they brand them by
2: location yeah. or by company.
3: Right, yeah. because the thought is... That the marine environment in which they're they're raised to maturity is going to impact the way they taste. Yep, so, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of similar to wine. Is
0: you know? there a cheat sheet available so you can <laughs> see what which uh, which oysters Actually, what, you know yeah. kind of so, what the differences are between them?
3: There's a blogger. Her name is Jacqueline Clark. She runs a blog called The Briny Babe, and she Ooh, has a tasting guide. She's a tasting guide on her website where you can look up all the different regions of the main coast, and she has. Not every farmer in Maine, but she's worked with a lot of them and she has flavor profiles. She's indexed a lot of these. Wow. Um, How many species. oysters do you
2: think she's had <laughs> over her, over her oh, life? Sounds like a guest on the show. So we can have her bring some yeah. examples yeah. So that yeah. we can try. But <laughs> she's doing good. really,
3: really interesting stuff. So she, she's doing a lot to um, promote the oyster industry in Maine. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Such an, like,
1: that's probably the definition of a niche kind of blog. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. It is very niche. Yeah, Absolutely. but it's really yeah. cool.
0: So what about, you know, you you talked about how some of the pushback that the farming industry in Maine has gotten is about water usage, coastal water usage. Um, What about land-based farms? Is the land-based farming happening, coming? Is that growing?
3: Yeah. Yeah, thank you for asking. I'm glad we get to talk about this. I think it's often, when we talk about aquaculture in Maine, a lot of the time we forget about the land-based farms because they're just getting going. They're not quite... Um, in full operational swing yet. So, we have two major projects on the coast right now that are set to go in or getting ready at, the, at this point. Um, one is Nordic Aqua Farms in Belfast, it's a land based salmon farm. And the other is Whole Oceans in Bucksport, also land based salmon. And then there's another project that was just announced that is um, Yellowtail for Jonesport, a little further down east, um, traditional fishing village um, kind of interesting story there they they're from florida they're raising yellowtail kingfish and it's a new zealand-based company they just changed their name to um, the kingfish company i believe but yeah so three major major projects underway and then a couple others that i think um, were announced but haven't quite gotten to the point where they're really in the news as much the bucksport farm the whole oceans has been received very well thanks to some Excellent groundwork that's been done by Jen Fortier. Um, and she is actually an Ellsworth native. And so she spent her early days in coffee shops with local people, talking to them about the project. Um, and just for some background, Bucksport was a mill town for many years. There's a paper mill that operated there and employed, I think, around 500 people. And when it shut down, I believe it was in 2014, uh, they lost a lot of jobs and it was a big disaster for the town. So they've been kind of waiting for a project to to come along like this that can bring back some employment and some industry to the area. So they are poised to receive it really well. And Jen's done a lot of work on the ground, um, try to change changing hearts and minds and getting people on board with the project. So they've done a really good job there. Um, and
2: what type of facility is this going to be? Is this like a RAS system? Yeah, it's the, an RAS. Okay, mm-hmm. You might have mentioned that. I'm sorry. Paying attention.
3: Yeah, they're all RAS. Okay. I believe. I'm not that familiar with land-based systems. So... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's R.E.S. But
2: I know the one in Belfast is mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about the other two.
3: Belfast has received a little more pushback on their project, the Nordic Aqua Farms. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure who did any of their groundwork or community work in the beginning or if it was done at all. But it seems like the community of Belfast is in a position where they are more able to reject something like a like a salmon farm. I've heard quotes from people who, you know, live in Belfast and they say things like, you know, I want Belfast to be a bookstore and coffee shop town. And that's why they moved there because they maybe moved there when it underwent a period of gentrification. Belfast for a long time was a chicken processing town as well as fish processing, so it was a big industrial center. And then those place, those um, industries left, and um, eventually we got to the point where it was coffee shops and bookstores. But now um, they are in a little better position than, I, I would say, Bucksport because they can say, you know, no, we don't want this farm here, or maybe they don't need it as much. So I think that the pushback for the land-based stuff really depends on, one, how the company approaches the groundwork, the communications in the beginning, and, two, how in need they are of jobs, really. yeah. Mm. yeah. That's probably
1: the more important yeah. part even.
3: And I should say Jonesport, the, the Kingfish Company, is doing a really good job as well. I've heard some recent news of them doing really good community work, spending the time they need to to get the community on board. And that's a working town. So um, I think they're going to have a successful start to their business, which is really good.
2: You know, in aquaculture, I mean, to your point early on in the conversation of what did you know about aquaculture? And it was, you know, the mangrove forest being destroyed when shrimp farms were being uh, put in I didn't come from a seafood background at all and if someone asked me what do you know about aquaculture I would have talked to the news articles of salmon escapes that was mm-hmm. what I what I knew in the in the beginning and so you think of some of these wild fishery coastal towns in Maine that are that might not be fully aware of what aquaculture is and they want to put in this big business that's going to do this. You know, we're going to raise and harvest salmon indoors and that might be confusing because it's new. And it's, it's so some of that groundwork needs to be really put in place for certain communities to understand, like, what it is, why it can work and, and help pave, pave that path for that acceptance of, of the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that communication and the framing of it is so
0: important. When, when you're trying to, to bring this industry into a new place, especially yeah. in a coastal town that has relied yeah. on fishing, wild caught fishing for so long. Mm-hmm. like What are some of the, you know, when we talked on the phone the other day, you talked about some of the issues that farmers are facing. And what I thought was really interesting is, you know, everything that you do is really on a very, very local level of you're, I mean you're you're in maine everything you're focusing on primarily is in Maine but you said that you're starting to realize that a lot of the issues that farmers are facing in maine are issues that farmers are facing all over the world so what are what are some of those biggest issues that you're seeing and how does it relate to farming practices in other parts of the world
3: mm-hmm. well I I went to the world aquaculture society conference back in February or it is still February so this month but I wouldn't say I know enough about aquaculture around the world to compare to to outside of the U.S., but I would say around the U.S., in this developed nation, in this Western society, there are a lot of similarities. I would imagine that in developing places, it's, you know, the needs are very different. So I wouldn't want to compare it to, say, shrimp farming in India. But I would say talking with some folks who are farming out west in, in Washington State, in California, and down in the, you know, the Southern East Coast as well, hearing people talk about you know, the ways that they're approaching communications and trying to grow programs for tourism and raise awareness. I mean, this is a story that we're hearing all over the US where Americans don't eat a lot of seafood to begin with, don't know yeah. a lot about where it comes from, and certainly aren't very familiar with aquaculture at all. So it just kind of drove home the point for me that we really have to start at like ground zero for this project because we have a population of people in this country, that really are totally uneducated about their food, and this is this goes beyond aquaculture at this point. But anyway, I would say in Maine, we we have a slight advantage because people who live along the coast anyway are, are a little more familiar with seafood industries yep. and fishing, and so they're slightly more aware, and they're they're more aware of aquaculture as well. But when you pull people in the state of Maine generally, it pretty much matches with um, the U.S. So very little That's knowledge. interesting. Yeah, hmm. people who live inland. Kind of like in river towns or northern Maine, um, very little awareness, pretty disconnected um, beyond just the idyllic picture of a lobsterman hauling traps. That's pretty much drilled into all of our heads as young men, right. <laughs> um, or anyone in New England for that matter. You think of fishing, you, got, you think of like lobster. You maybe got that collared. mural on
0: your bedroom wall when you're a little kid. Right?
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have some nautical stuff in your house, you know. Yeah, yeah. anchors on your towels. But the other thing that I realized is that the actual farmers, beyond just from a messaging point of view and uh, general awareness, the actual farmers are facing similar issues as well. So issues of congested waterways where there's so many different uses now. There's so many businesses on the water that aren't Um, harvesting their tourism-based and um, services for people from away. And there's really, we're actually fortunate in Maine to have a strong working waterfront compared to other states where they've lost a lot of that infrastructure and to development. So if anything, it made me feel a little more optimistic being in Maine, knowing that, you know, Mainers got this, you know, (laughs) Mainers (laughs) are on board. Mainers will be easier to convince than, say, folks from South Carolina or Washington State. Um, So it was just really interesting to hear what other farmers have done to try to improve public perception and work with other marine users to try to get their projects through and, and trying to grow an industry, you know, in an area that um, or a, a country really that has kind of moved past the the, the lo- bygone days of fishing and working water. Like that's kind of a, a lost trade in, in our country, I would say. So it's an uphill battle for them and it's it's still challenging for us as well, but I think we're in a good position in Maine for sure.
1: Another problem that I see as a recurring issue, especially in the United States, is similar to what you first brought up about the licensing of lobster licenses, is that in order to get the, I'm not sure what the correct term is, maybe it's also licensed, but in order to get the grant from your state government to use that area for farming, the wait period is really long to get that also, that approval. And I'm wondering if that's the case in Maine also.
3: Yeah. So, so we call them leases, leases or licenses. Yeah. Um, we have smaller scale licenses that are, we call them LPAs, uh, licensed to Practice Aquaculture. And they are um, 400 by 400 square feet, really, really small, just like to experiment, see if something's going to grow at all. Um, so those are pretty easy to get. The, the state government recently started a program where, actually it wasn't recent. I think they've been around since like 2002. But- Basically, if you want to try to start a farm, you can apply for an LPA and you can own, you can get a license for up to four of those. So in total, 1,600 square feet of farmed area in the ocean. Those, the process for getting those is is a lot less rigorous than for an experimental or a standard lease, which is a larger amount of area. And it's usually for more established farmers that have a business plan, yep. have some financial backing, you know, have the ability to really set it up and get it going so it just depends on on what scale you're going to do. It's pretty easy to start up kind of like a, if you're going to do it as a hobby or just try to experiment. But, um, yeah, the wait period for some of the standard leases, it varies a lot. It can be two years, sometimes longer, depending on the process, because those involve the public as well. They require public hearings to go through. The standard leases do so. Um, if a lot of that original initial community work is not done, sometimes the public hearings can get drawn out because people weren't you know, spoken, spoken to in the beginning or involved. Yeah. Um, so there have been a few cases where it's really on the entrepreneur themselves to, to get that settled in the beginning before they approach the state government. And, you know, there's been some information flying around out there about the Department of Marine Resources approving 99 percent of all leases, kind of just rubber stamping them. But the reality is that so many folks are discouraged from actually getting the full application in in the early stages that the approval rate is high. It's not 99 percent, but it is high. And that's because it's the whole process from when you start to when you actually submit the application. You know, you have to have lots of conversations with people. You have to be really serious about it. So the high approval rating is a good thing at the end of the day. And it means that we have a rigorous system for looking to see, you know, who should be doing what on the water
0: do you see any rumblings coming about about other species other fisheries species growing and starting to kind of i don't want to say make a comeback but you know like you mentioned it's pretty much come down to just lobster at this point but are there any other species that you see in the near future that can kind of come in in addition to lobster and then the farm species as well or is that kind of so far out of your wheelhouse mm-hmm. now because you're in the aquaculture world? <laughs> I,
3: well, no, it's not. I, I haven't heard any. No. I think that most of the, I, I've heard something about striped bass or uh, Mediterranean bass, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not really sure about that. And I would say we have lobster, we have ground fish, we have a few tuna fishermen, and then we have scallops as well. The shrimp season's been shut down in Maine for a long, long time, and and scallops are the season's getting shorter and shorter. And they're trying. It seems like most of the fisheries are really hanging on by a thread at this point. We're doing really? everything we can just to keep them viable. And yeah, I, I would say in the immediate future, there's really not any commercially viable fishery beyond lobster um, that a lot of people can get into. You know, there are some ground fishermen in Maine, but there's not a lot of them. Right. And, you know, there's a reason why it's hard to get into that. And there's so few vessels that I can actually go out on those long trips. So, yeah, I would say probably not.
0: So what can we do? What can our listeners do to try and help the main seafood industry keep going? You know, what uh, what should we be looking to support to help this?
3: Well, you should always support BAP, I would say, first of all. We have a BAP farmer in, I think, it. Cook is definitely BAP certified. I don't know. There may be other farms in Maine and definitely the land-based operations are going to be looking to get BAP certified as well. So I think that's the easiest thing for for consumers is just to look for that label, first of all. And beyond that, you know, asking questions when you get seafood, ask your server, ask your fishmonger, ask, ask the person at your seafood counter, where is this from? Is this from New England? Is it farm-raised? And um, if they have information on that, it's always good to know and- Just try to support Maine farmed seafood whenever you can, when you have the option to do it. And the other thing I would say is be creative and go out there and try new things and be open-minded about different species. Maybe you haven't tried a quahog and, you know, maybe there's a farmed Maine quahog somewhere where you can experiment and and explore with that. And uh, come to Maine. Come to Maine (laughs) and try our delicious Maine oysters and mussels and seaweed and, and salmon.
0: You don't have to default to lobster. There's plenty. Yeah, of Yeah, you don't
3: things. have to come and just get a lobster roll. I mean, come
0: Although and get a lobster,
2: lobster, lobster rolls.
3: <laughs> come and get a lobster roll and a crab roll, which I think are better. <laughs> mm, oh, going to cut from that from a out beaner.
2: for yeah, you! Yeah. Wow.
3: I do love lobster,
0: and the the <laughs> crab is for, is crab. local from Maine too. Uh,
3: I don't think. so. Well, yeah, there is Maine peaky toe crab. Okay, but a my lot wife of it's, is my
0: wife is from Maryland, and so like this could yeah, be like a big. Oh. It could be a big. She's very passionate about her yeah. Maryland crab, so
3: she has to come try a Maine crab roll sometimes mm-hmm. because we'll they are delicious but
0: have to so she's, a, a border, she's an oyster, she's she's an oyster person too i think if we bring in a main she's just go. gonna start shoving oysters yeah.
2: down oh, so. Mm. so
1: briefly before we finish could you just give us a little more information about what maine aquaculture association does to support these farmers
3: in maine yeah we're a non-profit trade association we are we're a non-governmental organization we are supported a hundred percent by our farmers um, and buy some grant money as well. But we are the state's biggest advocate for the aquaculture industry. The number one thing we do is we we advocate for the interests of the farmers at the state and federal levels. And then beyond that, uh, my job is really to provide outreach and education to main communities. So talking to folks, participating in events, helping to host events, just raising awareness in general. And then we also offer help for our growers, in terms of business planning and financials, um, crop insurance consulting, that kind of thing. So really, anything they need. <laughs> but yeah, we are we are kind of the voice for the industry. We're the rallying point, and I would say that's basically what we do. <laughs>
0: and it's so it's sent you all over the world, right? Even though you're in Maine, you've you've traveled to a couple cool places, right? Yeah,
3: I have. Yeah, been new. to Hawaii for WAS, and been to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Going to Boston soon. (laughs) Boston Seafood Show is coming up. We're
0: hoping to get you in Tokyo for our goal conference.
3: Hopefully. Yeah, we'd love to I
0: think you would get a lot out of it, and you should definitely join us. I don't know who we need to talk to, but we need to get you over there.
1: (laughs) And to all of our listeners also. And if any of our listeners are from Maine, make sure that, or even if you're not from Maine, make sure that you check our show notes for the link to the Maine Aquaculture Association's website. We'll have that linked Below.
3: And our social media as well.
1: Yes, yeah. follow them. They and I think even social. if
0: you're if you're not in Maine, I think what you guys do over there can really be a, a fantastic influence and inspiration and kind of an idea machine for other areas that have similar issues to Maine and mm-hmm. have similar, you know, I, I guess issues isn't the word to use, but um, opportunities. Uh, in their local areas, they can see what you're doing and maybe piggyback off some of those ideas. So I, I would encourage all of our listeners to check out the Maine Aquaculture Association yeah. for sure.
2: I mean, to piggyback real briefly off of that, when we we're talking about land-based aquaculture systems. And although Maine has a ton of coastal property, a land-based aquaculture facility doesn't have to be located on the coast. It can be located almost anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a few things you have to look out for, but that's an example of how you can get local product into local communities quicker, fresher. I feel like I'm doing an ad. My bad. <laughs> just, no, just that was. Yeah. That. And there's going to
3: be maybe less resistance as well.
2: Yeah. Because yeah. it's
3: on the land, it's not in the water. So a mm-hmm. little bit out of sight, out of mind for some folks, but it's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm excited to see where the land based industry goes in Maine because we're still at the very early stages. Yeah. Um, But it's really, it's interesting because Maine traditionally had a lot of different industries along sort of all of our many rivers, Mm -hmm. Um, lots of towns that were built up around industries on the rivers that have since left um, textiles, um, shoe factories, pulp and paper, um, lots of different poultry and whatnot, fish processing. And since those have left, we really have kind of like a hole in a lot of these communities where um, there's not a key Uh, economic driver anymore. So I think Angus King put it best when he calls it the schizophrenia of Maine, (laughs) which is, I'm paraphrasing this, but I believe he said something along the lines of Mainers, when we don't have industry, we clamor for it. We want jobs. We talk about the mill days like they were yesteryear. You know, remember when we had so many jobs and when new businesses propose to come into those towns, there's resistance often. People don't want it. And so it's kind of this schizophrenia of the mind Catch where, mm-hmm, where we, we need the jobs. We don't really want them. Yeah. Are we privileged enough to be able to say no? Can we survive on a tourism and uh, coffee coffee shop and bookstore economy? Or, you know, do we really need solid year round jobs and benefits and paychecks for hardworking mainers? So it's a trade off. That's a really good <laughs> yeah. thought to
1: leave
0: our the, the You know, the town I live in is exactly like that. Yeah. the housing rates in my town just keep going up and everyone's saying like no one's you know we how are we gonna get people to move in here but then if someone tries to even open like a coffee shop they're like no you can't we already bring, got one we don't you need can't two. bring new industries into <laughs> our small town in New Hampshire and it's, you know, they it's, wanted to
3: stay quaint and just like it was when they found it
0: yeah mm-hmm. and exactly. they
3: benefit from the value being the property value being lower as well mm-hmm. they can build a house there
0: mm-hmm. yep. So yeah. what else do you want to talk about? What else do you want to get out there while you have the platform and a microphone in front of your face? <laughs> What's on your mind that you really want to make sure that we don't forget to talk about before we wrap up?
3: Um, I would just leave the podcast with one final thought, the audience. And that's just, you know, when you support Maine aquaculture, when you buy seafood from Maine, just think about the people that got that from the ocean to your plate. Because that's really the most important thing for us at the end of the day is is good jobs for good people and having a sustainable livelihood on the coast of Maine and um, working sort of against climate change if we can any any small thing we can do to reduce our impact and you know eating seafood is great eating local seafood is better eating farm Maine local seafood is the best mm-hmm. so I would say responsibly farmed yeah and we didn't really touch on the environmental benefits of aquaculture in Maine maybe I should say a little something about that. But kelp farming is actually really good for the ocean. It removes nitrogen and carbon. So it acts as a carbon sink, which as we all know, the ocean is the biggest carbon sink on the planet. So if you eat Maine kelp, you're fighting ocean acidification and climate change, which are both threatening um, lobster populations as well. So I believe that wild fisheries in Maine and aquaculture can definitely coexist. And there's some benefits of both working together. Um, And then Shellfish, obviously, eat phytoplankton and algae in the water column, which is also a huge benefit for water clarity and yep. purification. Yep. So, yeah, we just leave everyone with the thought that it's it's great to support local, sustainable, fresh seafood, and it's important for our economy. So, Chow down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, thank you so much for coming down here and sitting down with us and talking with us for a little bit. We really appreciate it. We appreciate what you guys are doing up there at MAA and the support that you've given us and do you guys have anything else that you want to say before we finish
2: up no just glad you're able to come down and have a chat with us today
0: yep
3: thank you so much guys really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today
2: thank you awesome
0: thank you Folks, that was our conversation with Afton Hupper from Maine Aquaculture Association. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And I know that I got some pretty deep insight into the industry in Maine that I had no idea about. Uh, Like, I didn't realize that wild-caught fisheries in Maine has been pretty much whittled down to lobster with a few other species thrown in here and there, but it's pretty much lobster. And I found that pretty interesting that uh, a lot of those fishermen who used to rely on wild caught fisheries are now starting to look into doing more farm stuff. I thought that was pretty interesting. Did you guys enjoy the conversation?
1: Yeah, it was great. I thought it was cool to hear about how the lobstering industry and say the kelp growing industry are kind of counter cyclical so you can do both and be like diversify your business interests and it just seems like a great idea all around.
2: Yeah, I was just impressed with how quickly she got up to speed with the ins and outs of the aquaculture industry. I'm still sure. learning, and I've been in it many more years than she has. Super. So very impressive.
0: She knows her stuff for sure, and it was really it was really cool to have her come down. It was great having her in the studio and in the office. I really appreciate her coming out, and I appreciate everyone who is listening right now for supporting us by listening. And if you want to get in contact with us, make sure you email us. Podcast at AquacultureAlliance.org.
2: Follow us on social at Aquademia pod, or call and leave a voicemail, one 384 3560
1: And the main Aquaculture Association is actually a strategic partner of the Global Aquaculture Alliance, which is where we work. So we will link to their website and some videos that they've made about producers that are members of their association in the show
2: notes.
0: Make sure you check that out and make sure you subscribe to Academia wherever you're listening right now and tell your friends about it. Keep on listening. We'll talk to you next time.
2: Ciao.
1: Bye.